Okay, so um, before I get into this, we are on this uh, Acts series, Unbelievable Believer, I've called this. This is the next section. This is where uh, Saul starts his ministry, as it were. He begins. There's some interesting little bits in here. I, I need to say about um, general preaching, uh, really, and my, my sort of revelation I was going through preparing uh, this sermon today, <clears throat> sorry, preparing a sermon uh, uh, over the week. Um, Sometimes there's a direct revelation, uh, a, a application that God wants you to hear and see. And sometimes he wants us to, he wants to reveal it directly, very clearly. And I will say that last week, I didn't know what God, the reason why God wanted me to say what I said last week uh, about being acceptable. Uh, only when we had someone come that it was obvious what God wanted to reveal to them. Uh, and to us as well, by the way, it's not just for one person, uh, but that God wanted to reveal something specific. Then there are times, just as Paul talks about, there are times, and, and, and that would it become more so, that we move on to meat. We move from the milk and we move on to meat. And that is to say that I won't always tell you how it applies to you. Because my focus is on scripture. And I would love, and I think you do this, there's a few of you that come up to say this, uh, much of the time I think this is the application of this, surely. And I'll get, well, what I learned from this today, Colin, was da 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 da. And it's entirely nothing to do with what I thought the application was. So hear me, there's never going to be a time when we're always going to have direct application. We're going to have to learn as Christians, what is the Spirit saying to me through the message? What does the Holy Spirit want me to learn today? Not what does Colin want you to learn today, but the Holy Spirit. And so there might be times of it, it, we need to go back to some milk. We need to just be fed on the ABCs. And then there are times that we need to really engage our brain and our hearts, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word. So all the time I'm focusing on on the expository method of the Bible, hopefully, uh, with some element of application. Uh, but I just thought I'd make that clear because there are times, and certainly this didn't feel like there was particularly any application, we just need to learn about what's going on. And then from there, uh, we might uh, pick up something for the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this, the unbelievable believer. We're looking at the first three years, strangely, in this small set of verses uh, of Saul's ministry after he uh, becomes a believer in Jesus. Uh, and it's very interesting how we know it's three years, which I'll come on to. Um, but we learned last week that Saul has been prayed for. He had ha uh, hands laid upon him by Ananias and became filled with the Holy Spirit. We also learned over the last two weeks that Saul was not the person we would expect to become a Christian, but also that God's plans for the spread of his kingdom do not always coincide with our own expectations of how God works. This week, we're going to look at what drives Saul to remain uh, faithful, what gives him drive to rise above the schemes against him that we'll learn about, and the disbelief all around him of his newfound faith in Jesus. I want us to understand today that Saul no longer lives to the world, but lives with a purpose far above that what the world wants him to live for. We can see how Saul has purposely, purposefully chosen a path of suffering for the name of Jesus, despite uh, being 
really his life will be a suffering for Jesus. I don't think he was unaware of that. He, he, many occasions when you read Paul, he is very aware that he is suffering for the name of Jesus in particular. Saul's life was particularly uh, about the suffer for the proclamation of Jesus' name. So there isn't necessarily, as I was saying, there isn't necessarily this week a direct application of what we would learn from Saul's life in this particular instance. Uh, there is uh, some mentions which I'll bring out of this, but there does appear to be, as we go through the text, this uh, connection with his persecution of Christians. Uh, and it's not, I've got to say this, it's not that he's God's punishing him uh, for being uh, a persecutor of Christians. I need to say that because that's not how it works. Uh, when, when God said he's going to use him, he's going to suffer in my name, Saul is almost reaping what he sowed. You know, he is, he's, going, he's gone out and he's, he's in prison, killed Christians. And now his disposition has changed, his life has changed. And so in, inevitably, people who were on his side or the side that he was on are going to hate him. That's just inevitable fact of life. If you switch sides, as it were, people, the other side will not like you anymore. Take any sport, people, apart from maybe rugby, rugby, that's different, lots of friendly banter going on, rugby is great, if only all crowds were like rugby crowds, it'd be fantastic, but football especially, it's quite, it's quite isolated, you know, once you're in this team, you're in that team, unfortunately it takes something like the event of Christian Eriksen where he had a cardiac arrest on the football pitch during the, world, during the Euros recently, where someone says, you know what, that's when we forget about football. In that sad state of affairs that it takes that much, someone almost dying on a football pitch, you know, to, to actually, people to go, you know what, this is only football. It's always only football. I want to say this now, it's always only football. It's, it's not anything more than that. All right, I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox again. But, but, we get the point. We switch teams, that's what happens, right? The other side don't like us anymore, and, and this, is, this is what we're seeing in, 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 that's a crude sense of describing it because he goes through much persecution, Paul. Um, but people will want to make him suffer because of being seen as a traitor to this original cause of imprisoning Christians. So we can also take from this, I think, as we read on in the verses, uh, that uh, a believer on their own, maybe this is the slight application, uh, without, without other believers backing them up, building them up, I think is a dangerous place to be. Uh, I think it's very um, easy for Christians, new Christians, people coming to the faith to think, well, as long as I have my Bible, I'll be okay. Uh, th that's not what the Bible teaches, by the way. The Bible teaches, and Paul teaches, Paul writes to the churches, the churches, and makes a big deal out of being together, a unified church. Makes a big deal out of it. To be at home and to say, I don't need anyone else, I've just got my Bible yeah, that's great. You've got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's great too. But there's a component missing, isn't there? There's a part that Jesus wants us to be, which is to be the church, be together. As believers in Jesus, we are already putting ourselves outside the acceptance of the world. I think the last thing any, in any position a believer should be in is being outside of other believers. I think they're ripe for the picking of the enemy. And so I want to encourage this, that Paul almost starts building this, uh, this, this, this principle of coming together. And we'll see that in our verses. Let's read our verses. Acts 9, 20 to 31. It says this. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. I'll talk about that separately. 
All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket for an opening in the wall. When, they, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, uh, Galilee, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So, let's first look at this. We begin to look at Saul's first journey into being a gospel sharer for Christ. We're first told that that's exactly what he did. He went into the synagogues and preached that Jesus is the Son of God. And what we know about Saul is that he was a skilled student of the great rabbi uh, Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Uh, and Acts 22 says that, Acts 22 verse 3 says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. What was an added benefit for the purposes of God's kingdom and the spread of the gospel was that Saul took advantage of the customs of the time that any able Jewish man was able to speak from the scriptures at the synagogue meetings. It's great how God uses that, isn't it? He finds a way, he says, there's this man who has this access to these people, and he's allowed, because he's an able man to speak from the word, he's been studying the law, he can go and speak. What's even more amazing about it is he's now a follower of Jesus. So God's word is getting there about Jesus. He's going to speak about Jesus. And this is where we jump to our first point today. What, what drives Saul? What is it that drives him? The first principle is a fundamental, I think, to be a believer, a believer in Jesus. And I need to tell you, there are no exceptions or compromises that are permissible or acceptable to this first principle that Saul follows. When Saul goes to the synagogues and preaches that Jesus is the Son of God, what he is saying before he does anything else, he is saying that Jesus is God. The text that we read, when you see the capitalization of the letters, it is not he is the son like a son to a father, although he is. He is the Son of God as in capital S because he is equal to the Father. As in, sorry, he's equality with God rather than equal to the Father. He's equality with God. I'll explain this. I've spoken before about it, but I think we just need to know that there is there's no confusion over the issue. The Bible, I think, is, is absolutely clear. 
What we look for mainly to show that Jesus is God in the text is that he says or says that he is the I am. And we see that, and they're very easy things to look at in the Bible and say, well, he says, I am. And that means he is God. And that's all good, and it shows exactly that. But the term the Son of God has been misapplied in certain sects of Christianity to mean that because it says the Son of God, some have taken that to mean that he is not God and just the Son of God. That's wrong. As if in some way we would have children who are not us but are born of us. So he is literally only the son of God. Now Jesus referred to himself as the son of God. When he did that, he was saying he is God. John 5, verse 17 to 18, I'm going to back this up with scriptures, not my opinion. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this, to this very day, and I too am working. Quality with God, there's the first one. For this reason, this is them, this is, this is the people trying to, who, who are trying to get rid of Jesus. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Text is clear. If you don't like this, speak to God about it, okay? It's not me. I'm not making this stuff up. This is in the Bible. This is what it says. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What Jesus does is refer to himself as the son of God. God, yes, is his father. But the meaning, the actual meaning in that time to be the son of someone had much more weight and meaning than we may use it today. For then, to be the son of someone meant you totally identify with that person's identity. We get this through the names, of, of Jewish names. We get this through an identity of, 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 of going back to the father. There's, there's always an identity. It's not just that you're the, just the son, the offspring, as it were. What we see in this verse is a direct acknowledgement that for Jesus to say he was the son of God would be to say that Jesus is making himself equal with God. He didn't dispute that. When they said that, he didn't dispute it. Now, one of two conclusions for you have to come from this. Either he is God, and God exists in three persons, the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's one. Or the other conclusion is that Jesus is another God alongside God. Then we start going a little bit crazy, right? That, that's just not how it works. It's not how the Bible says or who the Bible says God is or who Jesus is. Jesus is not another God alongside God. It cannot be the second one. Jesus is not another God or even a small g God, as some would have you believe. John 10, 29 to 30 says, My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. One. Not two. Not side by side. One. There is a relationship of father and son. Jesus, the Son, prays to the Father, but when it comes to being God, Holy Spirit, Father, Jesus are all God. They are one. I hope that is clear as mud, hopefully. And I, I do actually hope that's clear. But, you know, we can go through the whole Trinity thing and everything, but 
We'll just keep going around in circles because at some point we're not going to have to accept that this is the case. Some will argue that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. That's true. Uh, but what, what do we do when we read the Bible? We study and we, we engage with the Holy Spirit for God to speak to us and to discern what the words mean. What does, what does the Bible say? What is the Bible saying to us? We do this with, to establish the Trinity, to understand that the Trinity is a thing. It's a biblical principle of understanding who God is because we see it in the word. So what Jesus does is acknowledge both separate persons and one God. He speaks in the context of the father-son relationship. The father is greater. He is the one whose hand believers are in, but also Jesus and the father are one. So he refers to father-son relationship in the context of order, because we know that. We know father, son, Holy Spirit. There is an order there that says we are one. This is what the Pharisees were hearing and what they knew it meant when Jesus said he is the son of God. That gives you some weight of when he says the son of, not even the I am bit, right? When he says I'm the son of God, that's enough to tear their clothes. That's enough to be blasphemer. They're accusing Jesus of being a blasphemer. They would only respond that way if he was claiming to be God himself which he is. He is the son of the father, but equal to God because he is God as the father is God. He and the father are one. This is what drives Saul when he speaks about the son of God. It's like the missing piece of the puzzle that he needed to complete the picture. Above all else, Jesus, who is the son of God, is God. That's what he believes. That's what he's preaching. That is what is being preached here. And that is a fundamental, closed hand, whatever you call it, primary belief of this church. That means it's non-negotiable. So either it's something that we accept, or you accept as being part of this church. And if you don't, you might struggle to be comfortable as this body of believers. It's really important that you know that there is no argument that can dissuade me from this point. Jesus is God. He is head of the church. He is leader of the church. He is everything. He is God. Everything is laid at his feet. All right. So now Saul is preaching what the Pharisees considered to be blasphemous. blasphemous. So it is no surprise that the people that heard this then asked uh, in... Uh, 20, 21 to 22. He says, uh, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem and those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them uh, as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What he's, what he's doing here is, is blasphemous. This man who was once ravaging, is the original translation, ravaging in Jerusalem against those who call on the name of Jesus, who took prisoners, is now agreeing with the people that he was persecuting and speaking for their cause. How is that possible? Just to understand the concept of their disbelief, and there's a lot of a disbelief in these verses about many different things, but when you look at this, 
their gravity of disbelief is they cannot believe such an extreme man who is so against them is now for them. That's the sort of gravity, the weight of which they're just so confused. What does it say? Uh, they were, it says later on, I'll come on to that later on, it says they, they were confused, but it's, it's a much more better word, I think. But here I want to speak to our second point of how people react and respond from being on one side to taking another side. And specifically, our Saul was seen as a traitor to the cause. I've personally had a few people, uh, not just... Um, yeah, certain people. But I've had a few people come to me and say, people who knew me before I was a Christian, uh, who I've spoken to uh, years later. And after I've told them I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor, uh, the thing they say, uh, and they, I think they're trying to be polite. I don't know. I'm not particularly offended by it, but um, they say, that's not, that's not the direction I thought you were going, you know. I, 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 knew, I know you. And I know what we used to do together. I know the sort of things we got up to together. I never thought that would be you. I never thought you would go and be, they avoid saying one of them. They say, I didn't think you'd be a Christian. I just didn't think you'd go there. That's not the sort of person I thought you were. But when people say that, I think it, it makes it all the more impactful, doesn't it? Isn't it great that God's, that almost my old life, as it were, and, and such far away from the new life that people go, that's not where I saw you going. And I don't ask, I don't want to know, but I do wonder what they think where I would have ended up otherwise. But I don't ask because it's not important now. I've, I've, chosen, uh, I've chosen Jesus who chose me first and that's awesome and uh, that's all I, <laughs> I'm, I'm confident and need to be confident in. But I think it's more impactful. They don't, they don't, as it were, see me coming, which is good. They don't think, even, even I would say my, my brotherly leaders across some other churches probably don't think, uh, didn't expect me to become a leader of a church, to be a Christian even. So maybe that's a bit like Saul, a little bit. Maybe they asked me the same question. Maybe they said, this guy who used to party nearly every weekend when he was younger. Sometimes, and I'll be honest with you, getting wasted. I mean, getting out of my head on alcohol. And then most days of the week, go down the pub, drink more alcohol. That guy? That guy is a Christian? That guy has stopped doing that, has stopped living this way, has stopped living recklessly, is now living opposite? like it it's good it takes people by surprise but on a more serious note i think there's two events in the world i think have shown more than anything that this this belief of someone's change and what they believe to be true is still something we do today let's take a drink hay fever get into my throat i might take some more drinks so just bear with me but i think there's two things here that show that there's um in we have two events that i think about taking sides. Big events that have happened. Brexit and coronavirus, I think, are big events that have really said there's one side or the other. I think Brexit, because there were people who changed their minds, who originally passionate about what they used to believe, and then after the vote, changed their minds completely about what option they voted for. That's either way. I'm not particularly taking the stance on either way. I'm just saying that's what people do. 
uh, and, and, and then people changed their minds because they learned some other information. Uh, second event was coronavirus that we're still going through. People who would demonstrate didn't care for the rules that government set in place, got coronavirus, nearly died, changed their minds and believed that we're in fact, we are dealing with a deadly virus. But both events have something in common. And I think this is what, in a similar way, what the Jews were doing uh, next after Saul baffled their own understanding, it says. Both the events in our recent history had one particular effect. Whenever anyone who was once vehemently opposed to the other opinion changed and agreed with that which they previously disagreed with, they have become, and I've heard about this, they have become targets of threats, threats of violence, and in some cases threats on their very lives to kill them. Now, I'm not making a judgment on any particular people that these people are like this and these people are not. I'm saying that we have this thing in us that does that. We, we tribe, we take tribes, we have our own teams. Uh, and then when someone changes, especially when it's something very passionate, very something we've dug in with, you know, we can get like this as people, as human beings. We can start to really, uh, we, we can threaten people's lives because they don't agree with us anymore. I think as we read our text here, in part, what caused the Jews to plot to kill Saul was, was quite likely, on one hand, the fact he was able to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. I think that, that just frustrates people. When we talk to people about Jesus, I think I know some people get very frustrated by it. When we say that he's God, that he can save your life, other people will respond, break down, and just say, I accept Jesus. Some people sit in the middle and say, I'm not sure. And some people are vehemently opposed to your view. On the other hand, I think what caused them to, um, this plot to kill him was the, the feeling baffled by the contradiction they were perceiving. You know, this all, this all builds into sort of just, just frustration. That there's this mix of Saul is just used to be this guy killing Christians, imprisoned Christians. And on the other hand, he is now a Christian and people can get so frustrated by that the two examples I just gave are, are clear examples that that has happened where one person changes their mind they will go against especially people in the limelight in the celebrity world even politicians we saw politicians getting hassled getting threatened on the street because they had either changed their mind or had a particular view that was opposite to others people just cannot Figure that out, why you would not believe what I say. But in many ways, they were seeing something in Paul that he later describes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, a new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All of this served to create an environment of extremes. He was seen no less than a traitor, they were no longer seeing the old Saul. The old Saul are gone, but I want to see my old mate Saul. You know, the guy that's passionate about killing Christians. I want to see my old mate Colin who would just go, go out and go and party and just get drunk. That guy's not here anymore. That, that guy is gone. That life is over. That's what it means to become a Christian. It doesn't mean you stop drinking, by the way. I'm not ruling out drinking. 
but extremes, isn't it? We're, we're, what we say is we're, we're not living that life anymore. I'm living against Jesus. I'm living for Jesus. I have to say there is this other reason why this escalates into plots to kill Saul. Between verse 22 and 23 of our reading, there's a gap, in case you don't know, of three years. I like the way Luke understates it in Acts. After a few days, he says. After, after a time. Luke, this is three years you're talking about. Three years. This is where it says, this is where we can get this, from Galatians 1, 13 to 18. It says, For you have heard, this is Paul, you've heard my previous way of life in, in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. We looked at this part last week. But then, but when God, who set me apart from a mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stay with him 15 days. So we can see from that there is acknowledgement there's actually three years in between this time. Uh, the time when he goes to the synagogues and then when they start to plot to kill him, it's some time later that she um, start to plot to kill him. Although it is likely many would have plot to kill him when he, wasn't, when he was in a different place as well. But Paul explained... More about what happened during these many days. He described how he went to Arabia for a period, then returned to Damascus. After he returns to Damascus, he went to Jerusalem. Paul spent a total of three years in Damascus and Arabia. So the first, this is a three-year beginning of his ministry, the first three years we're looking at. So I think the reason why this escalates, why uh, into plots of killing Saul, is because Saul has returned a man who's gone through some experience of preaching to the Gentiles, and now he's back further equipped to share the gospel with the Jews. And I do wonder whether why they were getting still so angry, so confused, sort of a befuddlement, as it were. I wonder if they thought before he went away that this was just a phase. This was just a fad, something that he was dabbling in. Saul will be back, don't worry. Old Saul will come back. Maybe Saul has lost his mind. And he'll soon be back to good old Saul, the Christian killing in prison kind of Saul. But years have passed, and Saul is more determined than ever. I think I could probably see why people were getting angry. You don't meet my expectation. I can't have that. My opinion must be right. My view of you must be right. And if it's not, I've got to end you. I've got to finish you. I mean, this is the view that they had. They were out to kill him. So we see Saul become, it says, more invigorated, strengthened, as he shares the truth of Jesus, so all the more the persecution would come. That's why last week we learned that he would be the one who would be persecuted forevermore. He will suffer in the name of Jesus. When you understand that single verse that God says he will suffer for the name of Jesus. You understand why he wrote Corinthians, Galatians. You, know, you understand why he then writes all these letters, why everything about him is all about suffering, because that's his mission. 
He's suffering for the name of Jesus. Not just to suffer, but to expose the glory of Jesus. In his suffering, he is content. He has been, he says he's been many things. He's been rich and poor, happy and sad, whatever you want to call it. One consistent thing. He's in Jesus every single time. So for this persecution, Saul needed protection from his brothers in Christ. So I want to move on to my final point. Okay, just want to check that. I want to move on to my final point, how important it is to be part of a discipling church, to be part of a family, a Jesus-focused, one-body, many-parts church. After Saul was rescued in a large basket through the city walls, he went to join up with the disciples after they rescued him. Verse 26 says this, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. The issue is obvious. The disciples, uh, the issue that they have is that they do not believe he's a follower of Christ at all. And now remember, he has in recent times experienced, as we saw, the Jews questioning if he, this is really the same person that used to persecute Christians. There's a theme here, isn't there? Just in these short verses, there's just unbelief everywhere that he has to deal with. Unbelief everywhere he goes, even amongst his own potential or future brothers and sisters. Maybe if we're in the same position as we're looking at this, you might, we might think, what is the point? It's bad enough being hunted down and doubted by those who don't believe in Jesus. It's bad enough I suffer a lot for that. But what else can I do if my own won't even accept me? I mean, imagine that. Imagine being vilified just by people who don't believe in Jesus and you're telling people about Jesus. You come to a church and a church says, are you really? I'm not sure. I, someone told me about you. You used to do this and that. Listen, I'm, I'm all for protecting the flock. But there's ways to do this without pushing someone out and kicking them out the door. There's ways to discern whether people are, 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 are on the road, on the journey to being a believer, who need guidance, correction, and help. And there are a big difference with those that are coming to cause division. Big difference. And we can do that without necessarily rejecting people who come through the door. And he might have said, if this is the love of Jesus, forget it. I'm not interested. But I wanna I wanna stick up for the disciples a little bit here. Remember from the disciples' perspective, he left as a self righteous Pharisee. And then he returns, claiming to be this humble servant of Jesus. I'm going to stick up for them a little bit and say, I get it. I get it. That's an extreme. It's unlikely we're going to experience that here to that degree. So I'm going to stick up for them a little bit, but only a little bit. Everyone knew his past reputations and they were afraid of him. When he tried to mingle with the people of God, he found that they withdrew from him. They did not believe that he was truly a disciple. They were living under the duress 
of the persecution for their faith. All sorts of means were being used to wreak havoc in the church. The man most responsible, responsible for this was a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. Here, they see in front of them an embodiment of their persecution. This is not just soldiers, this is Saul. This is the guy. Now this same man wants to be part of the fellowship of the church? Was he legitimate? Was he just infiltrating the church so that he might kill more believers? It says in, in the text, that when it says that he, he, he tried to convince them, he, he, he spoke to them, he tried to, 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 to be part of them, uh, it was like a present tense, so he kept doing it. He was there and he kept petitioning, please, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christ follower, how can I prove it? You know, he kept doing it, kept trying to persuade them. But luckily, I say luckily, it's not luckily, God's placement of Barnabas at the right time who all knew as a godly disciple, who had sold his field, we see in Acts 4, to support the believers in the church in Jerusalem. He came forward introducing the sword to the apostles and declaring a sword had seen the Lord in the way and how the Lord had spoken to him and how Damascus had preached boldly in the name of Jesus and from then on he was accepted. Again, it was important that the issue of accepting Saul was dealt with that's why he never let up. Saul, by the way, we saw in the verses, had his own followers as well at this point. He had people that were with him as well. But he needed the disciples as much as they needed him. In fact, what we find is that even in the face of the persecution of the church and more plots to kill Saul, we find that what this was building to was a peace that the church would have. Isn't that ironic? Here is the havoc wreaker who, if God's plan is obeyed, this havoc wreaker will bring peace to the church. That just doesn't make sense. That's amazing. This guy who should be the one who should still be doing what he thought he should be doing before, which was killing Christians, imprisoning them, he's the one who's going to bring peace. As if slow down the persecution, give the church a chance to breathe. Paul's letters to Corinthians constantly stresses the importance of remaining true to the teachings of Christ, including being in one body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, For just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts, its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. I really believe that Paul believed in the biblical concept of a body of Christians. Not each one individually being isolated as believers, but that believers should be connected with a body of believers. This is all reflected in our last set of verses here. Acts 9 verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. you see that the term... Um, there, I might just go back just so you can see that. That's the wrong one. It's the last one. That's 31. There we go. Then the church. Really important. The church. Not churches. Not churches throughout. The church, as in one body. The church. 
The singular church signifying the one church consisting of all believers throughout all the regions. And there was a strong sense of oneness, of unity throughout the whole. For they did recognize that they were all one in Christ Jesus. The church enjoyed peace. And Saul's conversion seems to have been directly related to that return of peace. We can know this because Saul himself was the reason why there was no peace for the followers of Jesus in the first place. We know he was the one who was the most zealot among those who wanted to imprison Christians. But now, as the disciples accept him, not only does he add to their number and add more gifting and dimension to the church, it gives them some rest, some peace to the disciples and the believers. It's it's good to note that when it says peace, it doesn't mean everything stopped. It doesn't mean that there was nothing to do anymore for a time. They, did, they just didn't do anything. It just meant there was, there, was, there was probably a let up in persecution. There was probably a let up just to let them catch their breath. But God, design, designing, planning this out, putting Saul there so it would bring this peace for a man that was seen as a troublemaker. That's amazing. The complete opposite of what you'd expect. Saul was bringing peace. The unity both brings Paul, Saul, under the care and protection of the disciples and provides respite for the believers. No one loses out when the unity of the church is recognized as an important part of the faith. So I just want to bring this together now as we finish here and uh, go on to our worship and have communion together. What we find is that Saul is driven by the conviction that Jesus is God, above all else. That what he's doing is to the glory of God, and that the same God he preaches about is the same God that saved him and made it possible for him him to preach Jesus at all in the first place. Above all else, he acknowledged that the assurance, his assurance, is in Christ Jesus. We then find that it puts him at odds with those who knew the old Saul, so much so that it causes frustration, anger, plots to kill him. But Saul, he doesn't live to the whim of others anymore. He's not driven by their opinion, by their, their, their desire to want Saul to be the good old Saul. He already knows what it's like to be the persecutor. And he was the worst of them. So his fear is not driven by the plotters. Some have said he was uh, a, a little bit um, ignorant, not well taught, not well understood, and that's why he almost like he rushed in. I don't see this at all. I, don't, I know he went away and he learned more and he understood more about the faith and he went to preach about Jesus, and that's all good. It gives him more and more experience and all that good stuff. But he was doing exactly what Jesus called him to do. I would think that if he's seen these people plotting to kill him, he's thinking, I've done worse things than that. You're plotting to kill me. I've done worse plots than that. He knows that, that inside and out of these, these plans, he knows what it's like to be the persecutor. So his fear is only fear and a reverence to God. So even if he's being reminded of who he used to be, for Saul, that isn't him anymore. He is new creation. No need to worry about the doubters or the haters. Just as long as he stays close to the word of God. Gets in with the disciples. 
gets with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we find that in his plea to be part of the disciples, that it is not his own words that convince, but of another, Barnabas. The important reminder both for Saul and the disciples that this is not a one-man mission. It is to be part of the greater body of Jesus, expressed through the church. That protection, edification, encouragement, correction, all needs to happen as a connected church. All operating for one goal as we come to a close. The one goal that matters above all else. To glorify one God in the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the only reason why we're even here today. Let's pray and then we'll have some worship time. Lord, I want to thank you that you are so far above uh, any of the schemes and plans that, that we make or even people who are scheming to scheme against us. You're, you're above all those things. No one can change your plans. No one can outplan you. And so, Lord, I, I want to thank you that we have a God who holds us so firmly in his hand that no scheme of man will ever take us out. Lord, we need to acknowledge also that we could, we can, because Lord, you gave us this free will of choice, we can reject you. We, we could do that. But Lord, I pray, I really do pray, Lord, that we, if we understand the God that you are in the Bible, Lord, I don't know how we could reject you. How do you reject a salvation that we didn't deserve, a free gift that we don't deserve? Lord, how do we reject something we cannot earn but is offered to us for free? Lord, if we were looking at that from a worldly point of view, we would seem crazy. Something offered for free, and I mean free, no strings attached in that sense, totally free. Here is eternal life with you, with the God of the universe. No, thank you. Lord, I do pray that as a church, certainly as believers, that we keep looking forward and we keep looking up to you. We don't look back, we don't, we don't look back at our old lives and, uh, and wonder, maybe I want to go back to that, maybe I want to see that again. Lord, our eyes have been opened. And now, Lord, I pray that we do not slide backwards that we stay indeed in your firm hand lord i pray for those that don't know you i pray for those that are yet to know you i pray for those people who don't understand you but lord i pray that we will come at the right time in the right place to come bring some sense to the world but only lord as you see it as you've taught us lord i do pray that we will see many come to you in this area, Lord. That we'll see many give their lives to you because just, just how free the gift of salvation is to let go no longer in the old life, no longer having to strive but have assurance in the future of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that that gift is here today. 
continues to be here until you return. And Lord, we just want to offer you praise now and worship. We just want to thank you for a holy God that you are, the holy God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for all these things. Amen.